Hello, you're listening to Film Grays. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're talking about cinema. More like films than cinema still, but, you know, we've been surviving, I think. Still plenty to graze on, isn't there? It's true, even when the word cinema becomes, like, talky or something and just, like, a... <laughs> A verbal artifact. Today we're talking about the last film that I saw in the cinema. Maybe ever. Oh no. <laughs> Is that really back where I was the last one? Yeah. Oh. But we've been finding alternatives, isn't it, Sam? We've been watching shit simultaneously. Yeah, the little film club's up and running. We've had two so far. Both have been really sick. Yeah, brilliant shout on Ollie's part, actually, to get it cracking. The first thing we watched was Under the Sun of Satan by Maurice Piala. I'd never seen any of his films before, but when I got the first pick, I had to go, like, right. <laughs> Priest, French, Bananos adaptation. Yeah, the same guy that wrote um, Diary of the Country Priest, and you can really feel it. Yeah, I, I thought it was fucking sick, to be honest. I loved it, man. Like, it was so extremely Bressonian, you know? And, yeah, very self-contained story. Gerard Depardieu plays, like, a, a country priest who's, like, struggling. Like, he wants to go and become, like, a Carmelite or whatever and, like, join, like, a monk community and just, like, brew beer and shit. I think it's the, the Trappists, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He just wants to access, like, the highest level of being, like, super zealous, devoted to... Yeah, he's like a flagellant and, you know... He's uh, also a terrible priest. Yeah, or like a, you know, quite transgressive priest. Uh, it's such a good story. It has an amazing central sequence, bang in the middle, where he's, like, walking for a field, and then it's, like... It's like a blue filter sort of thing. Well, it feels like it does to, like, cut to night. I think it's Nuit Americana shot day for night like shot against the the light or whatever it's very bizarre looking effect i mean it did look like a tint didn't it yeah like um like like an old silent film or something yeah 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 the editing in that film was so like abrupt and every like change was just so shocking to me that one especially was just Uh, it's a stunning sequence where he's confronted by the devil also a great performance in there from sandrine bonnet from uh vagabond yeah i need to watch that yeah but what a great pick well done. Yeah, starting as we mean to go on with the challenging but rewarding viewing. Ollie's pick was the second film we watched last week with a lot more success at finding subtitles and high definition copies, actually. <laughs> yeah, so that was um, Women in the Dunes. Yeah, by Tashi Gahara. Yeah, about an uh, entomologist who is sort of taken captive by a woman and like brought into this weird village ecosystem where he's like a sort of enters into servitude. It's extremely philosophical. The aesthetics are just mad. Like, the way they shoot the desert is stunning. Yeah, that that black and white cinematography, all the texture in the sound, it would look pretty shit in colour, I think. Well, it makes it seem like way more alien as well. Um, It really reminded me of like sort of old sci-fi, Twilight zone sort of concept stuff you know, with the philosophical implications and, like, you know, the journey of the main character and into the fucking abyss. It was really dope. I'd recommend it to anyone. Apparently the novel is also fantastic. Very worthwhile checking out if you want to catch up. Yeah, it really inspired me to sort of engage with some more sort of classic Japanese cinema. So I watched two-thirds so far of Misaki Kobayashi's uh, The Human Condition, which is sort of considered one film, but it's it really is like three films in six parts. And it's like a epic set during 
World War II. Really insane film, to be honest. I'm not going to get into it now because there's so much going on, but it is like an epic where the guy goes on like a mad journey through like labour camps, military barracks and, you know. We're really running out of the big beasts to conquer in our first 20 episodes of Film Grace. <laughs> We've already done Satan Tango and Out One. By like episode 40, it's just going to be like an all Lav Diaz podcast. <laughs> yeah, Although I clocked fuck. all of Lav Diaz's films and they're all like 10 hours long and they're all available yeah. on Mubi for like one ninety nine. Oh, cool. So uh, Fair, Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen any, but I, yeah, I was reading about them recently because, you know, they're obviously standouts in the sort of slow cinema genre. I want to get involved, uh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, but human yeah, condition sounds sick. Um, yeah, I really haven't sort of ordered my thoughts about it, but it's, you know, it is an adaptation of a novel and it's extremely, you know, novelistic and like thematically rich. Also, I feel like it's quite transgressive in that it's extremely critical of the imperialistic Japanese state. Yeah, just an extremely impressive film. Insane cinematography. Very intense. I, I honestly yeah. hadn't heard about it before until I got a letterbox account. But those films are so high on like the letterboxed top 250 or whatever. But I love Kwaidan, which is a film that um my uncle get, got me for Christmas when I was pretty young. And it's oh, like is a, that the like folk tales? Yeah, song. yeah, yeah. It's like oh. a anthology film. Very, very scary. Cool. But, um, yeah, I need to watch yeah. that one. I, mm. When this is all over, we can watch it together. I'm looking forward to. It. Yeah. The next film for Lil Film Club, or the film we're watching tomorrow, is um. A selection from a good friend of the show, Soraya, and it's Larry Cohen's It's Alive, and it looks fucking wild. Yeah, it looks mental, doesn't it? <laughs> um, that's about like a killer baby or something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only thing wrong with this baby is it's alive. Um, oh, fuck. Larry Cohen made this film, Cue the Winged Serpent, that is like a real cult classic. I haven't seen that either, but I want to. And we're going to keep on doing this shit, maybe even after quarantine. If there is an after quarantine. So uh, get involved. It's Wednesdays. We start, I guess, around 8 UK time. And we've got a Discord server so we can post our like Trotskyist memes while we watch the films and stuff like that. Yeah, and Francis can describe invariably describe characters as having been blackpilled at some point throughout. <laughs> <laughs> it's the little film club. Yeah, please get involved. So the main topic of discussion on this episode of Film Greys is contemporary filmmaker Kleber Mendoza Filio. Yeah, a filmmaker I wasn't actually really familiar with until Baccarat came out. Uh, that was the first one that caught my attention. Um, you, you'd seen some before, hadn't you? Seen Aquarius. But, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about all of them. He's made three feature narrative films. His first film was a documentary where he sort of talks to filmmakers called Critico. He himself, like, started out as a film critic. As a lot of the greats do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very sort of or did. French New Wave style. His production company, Cinemascopio, is, like, also his old blog where you can, like, read, like, reports from Cannes or interviews with filmmakers or actors, and like little like notes on film. It's quite interesting. I really want to see Critico. It's available on his Vimeo account, and you can rent it for a pound, but there's no subtitles. Yeah, I was really happy when I clocked it was on there, because he has, you know, his Vimeo channel, you can watch all his sort of early short films on there. Most of them have subtitles. Probably going to talk about 
green vinyl and caged in. Those are both on there with English subtitles. And we're definitely going to talk about Recife Frio because that one is sick. But yeah, you can watch all of them on there. Two of his feature films, Baccarat and Neighbouring Sounds, have been on Mubi, so hopefully some people saw them while they were on there. But, well, Baccarat certainly will be coming to some sort of streaming platform, won't it? I'm sure. And Aquarius is on Netflix. Yeah, it's a weird film to find on there. Very much so. One of the best films on there. Yeah, made a big splash at Cannes, uh, <laughs> didn't it? Still can't get people to watch it, though. Yeah, it's sort of, I feel like all of these are sort of a hard sell, but... Honestly, there's so much to appreciate and enjoy in them. I've recommended Aquarius, it being on Netflix to multiple people. Honestly, though, he's a really interesting filmmaker, and I think his work really touched on themes that have been sort of central to the film Grey's critical project. You know, we did our episode on Bong Bong Joon-ho recently, and, you know, everything that we celebrated about his films, I think, is is also in, in Clayton Mendoza's Filio's films, you know? You could even say he's a bit more explicit and focused, even though all these films have a lot of unanswered questions in them and are sort of deliberately ambiguous. But he is like an extremely leftist filmmaker, I would happily say. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, uh, uh, I guess because maybe that's because they're like sort of social realism films as well, that, um, that, that they seem more explicit as well, rather than relying on like sort of allegory or... Of the people he interviewed in uh, Critics... Among people like Aki Karazmaki and Carlos Sora and Academy Award winning filmmaker Peter Farrelly, Costa Gavras is in there. I feel like I invoke him quite a lot on this podcast, even though I haven't seen that many of his films. Costa Gavras. Yeah, man. Did you watch Missing? Yeah, it was so good, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like that kind of telling like tight, suspenseful, dramatic stories that are just very deliberate in what they're trying to like the the meaning is like super text or whatever oh well for sure man absolutely and for all that political engagement in his work he is uh, not a uh, beloved national filmmaker in brazil especially not in the bolsonaro administration i mean his films are very concerned with like destruction both of like social landscapes and like physical landscapes like the setting of baccarat but he's very explicitly reacting to what's going on in brazil politically both Aquarius and Baccarat premiered at Cannes and sort of made international headlines for well, Aquarius. He staged a protest with all the cast and crew holding up a placard saying Brazil is not a democracy anymore. Oh yeah, they did the dangerous old trick of being photographed holding a piece of paper. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the political point is obviously important yeah. here. That was after Dilma Rousseff was impeached and now Baccarat... Um, where he's been sued by the government in Brazil. Fuck, yeah, I mean, we'll get into how Baccarat varies from his, like, early work, maybe as a response to the the world, you know. But, I mean, these social and political issues are just so prevalent throughout, and stuff about labour and power relations, consumerism, gentrification is, like, a really important theme throughout, and, you know, the growth of, like, the high-rise and the introduction of these, like, sort of globalist models... Yeah, but also, you know, history and memory. I guess, like, if you're, like, really railing against modernity, then, like, I, I don't think it's, like, conservative, though. I think it's just, like, sensitive to issues of, like, history and for sure, the world for sure. we live in. So it's very reactive. But I guess the best way to do it is the fact that it's, like, he's a really localised filmmaker. All his films are set in his home region of Pernambuco. 
Yeah. Um, let's talk about let's talk about Cold Tropics, man. Recife Frio. It's basically a twenty-minute short. The concept is like a cold front drops over their native city of Recife, and it like completely fucks everyone's shit up and like changes how everyone has to live. Turns it into Scotland. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Everyone's like walking around in like big jackets and shit and like it's hilarious but also really sad. It's true the way it like affects life for certain people, especially like the working class, uh, the maids who work in these high rises and stuff, you know, their needs are completely ignored as soon as it happens by society you know? for sure for sure i mean this is something that's like you know the prevalence of like domestic workers and maids in brazilian society is definitely something that that he his work engages with and in this one there's like a segment dedicated to it how you know the typical sort of spatial hierarchies of a like bougie home and like shifted to respond to this like new climate where like the maids like shitty room that's like orientated in like a shitty way is now like beneficial so like the teenage son like moves in obviously highlighting these like discrepancies in like normal life that was probably my favorite sequence in the in the short i guess it emerges from this like sort of sci-fi premise but it is just scene after scene of like real people yeah for sure i mean the conceit is is, is it like a foreign television company like making a documentary about it so has like a really sort of anthropological feel sort of verite feel as well i guess like a lot of good concepty sci-fi you know where it's like just a mirror to like interrogate like real life and like i'm sure things that people were saying related to their real life and could have been like recontextualized to like fit the like dystopian scenario that they've conjured right beyond having like a sort of peter watkins dimension to it yeah big time man it's also like a pretty hilarious the tone isn't it's more close to like armando ianucci shit or something yeah like that, where there's time. a lot of like punchline spaces and stuff like that for sure man and like sort of like visual comedy the like um craft people that like Instead of making like little like key rings of like beach bods, drawing like shriveled up cold dicks and like clay models of like families gathered round a hearth and stuff like that. It's also cynical and like, you know, really saying a lot about fucking biopolitics and, you know, how like everyone's just like wrapped up in these economic systems, you know, and like willing and unwilling participants of participants nonetheless i mean it's important i guess to note that recife is like one of the oldest old portuguese like colonial cities in brazil it was like the first slave port in america like it's like you know there's a lot of like wealth there but also a lot of economic disparity i watched a really interesting documentary actually which i was put onto in the cinemascopio translated to english blog um it's called high rise it's directed by this guy, Gabriel Mascaro, and uh, DP was the guy that did all of Kleber's films. Um, and he did Rojo as well. Yeah, Pedro Sotero. Um, Terrific film. And it's, a, yeah, this documentary, High Rise, um, and they basically just interview the uh, occupants of, like, penthouse apartments in Recife, Sao Paulo, and Rio de Janeiro. And, um, man, these people are just extremely aloof. This, like, people being like, ah, uh, you know, talk, talking about, like, not wanting to hear their fucking 
maids clattering pans. This woman being like, oh, like, when you're up here, the gunfire's like fireworks. Oh, like, well, I used to think the slum was, like, scary, and now it looks like little dollhouses. Like, it's just right, mental. Right. Um, but, I mean, it really sort of, I guess, highlights a, a lot of the same issues that the, these films do in, like, a, in, in a narrative way. I guess there's just such facts of life in Brazil. I mean, the idea of crime is writ so large on, like, the kind of Brazilian cinema that favela, like, slum living or whatever. I mean, you think of, like, Pixar and, like, City of God, which I guess are, like... Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's literally, like, that was my sort of primary Brazilian cinema touchstone, you know, <laughs> when I was, like, a kid. Of course. The sort of picturesque inequality of it taking place all on these, like, you know, epic, like, seafront vistas. Yeah how much of his films take place like indoors let's talk about neighboring sounds then man his first narrative feature came out in 2013 set in recife it's like parallel stories of like varying degrees of seriousness i guess the two main characters are a sort of bored mum who smokes loads of weed who's really pissed off by her neighbor's dog i watched a fish called wonder recently and like michael palin and that he's just He's just got his whole own thing going on, even though I guess he's more like embedded in the story. But this is kind of like, it's the first thing and the last story you're with, but it seems like really quite like casual and jokes. That plot element um, comes from his 2005 short Electro Domestica, where it's basically like transposed from that short into this film, um, but with uh, Maeve Jenkins in, in the main role. She's fantastic. All the sort Definitely of like well. elements of this story uh i guess it was a sort of proof of concept that you can watch that on his vimeo actually is it like the the same dialogue and stuff like that um the same, same? it's really similar man i i i didn't do like a proper close comparison i think electro domestic is actually set in the 90s um which makes it slightly different um but it's still you know at a, like she orders like a dench tv and like she's bunning and blowing it into the vacuum and she like has a wank on the washing machine the sequence of her fighting with her neighbor in neighboring sounds was fantastic i thought yeah i'm not sure if that's in electro it's hard to describe it if if we talk, just talk like break down the characters because it is like sort of vignette and it's about the street you know it's like a fucking synecdoche or it's like a Bruegel, you know, like these little things going on, like um, it establishes these like different sort of elements in the street and then a private security firm of two people. Yeah. of like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they come and like pitch like their services and then they so yeah, they pitch up on the street they with like, they pitch their tent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they're like riding around on like BMXs and like just like investigating shit at night at one point they like see a kid in a tree and they like beat him down a little bit and like you know they're just there like flexing but then i guess at the end like their real like sort of function is like made manifest you know and it seems sort of arbitrary like the end is like really when i first watched it the end sort of i found it quite surprising you know i guess it does like lead up to it and it makes sense but i also found it like it's a bit of like a ah, moment. It's you know? a great ending. Yeah. It's got like a affable landlord character who's like wise and like for most of the film he's like Oh, uh, you say landlord, but you know, he's like a local like 
feudal over. It's like a feudal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a feud, yeah. It literally, <laughs> in like a lot of structural ways, it literally is that he charges a tithe and he profits off all the shit that's going on on the street. But it's interesting because this whole story is focalized largely around his like nephew. Yeah, he's like sort of reconnecting with like a like a young woman that used to live there and like her is it her building is like owned by them and is going to be demolished. There's a really wavy scene where they go it's quite dreamlike and they go and it's all overgrown. Love that sequence. That's mirrored with a sequence where they go to the country where this old man lives essentially. Oh, they're in like the the waterfall and it goes blood red. I mean, that actually is a dream, isn't it? Yeah, but it's a manifestation, you know. I mean, I guess it's like a big old bit of uh, sort of foreshadowing as well, isn't it? But I guess it's living memory, you know, it's all these undercurrents. Oh, this is exactly the point, man. Because I was thinking about the end and like it does seem sort of arbitrary, but it's not because like all these things that seem arbitrary, like the fucking architecture and like how they live... And, like, society, it's not arbitrary, is it? It's, like, the result of, like, historical violence. And, like, that is what bubbles up at the end. And I guess a lot of it goes unspoken, but between the characters, it is, like, a fact of experience, you know, the whole time. We can see it, like, there's two characters who have, like, very prominent scars on their faces. And they're always introduced in, like, oh, do you remember me? No. <laughs> I think it was another guy who looks like you or whatever, that kind of exchange. Oh man, oh, it's so good. But it's a, it, comparatively, it's such a small part of the film compared to like that woman and her kids like smoking weed and like trying to blow up her neighbor's dog. <laughs> they're like so fragmentary, but like they totally dominate the tone. But their consumerism the is still, you know, part of the, the violence, you know. As a film, like one of the things that really stood out for me was like, the use of sound and how it like really elevates all like the sort of quotidian action. It's all like it's not music, is it? Really, it's like sort it's like of, atmospheric sound. Yeah, yeah. like but DJ like, music is like incorporated. Yeah, there's that. like diegetic music, but it's like angle grinders and like the waves and fucking alarms, and it's like a more like sort of naturalistic form of melodrama. And it's just so effective, and like I, I, I watched it uh, like wearing headphones, and it like, oh, it's really intense. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a really intense film. Fuck. A good title. I, I should have seen it in the cinema actually for that reason. R.I.P. <laughs> Fuck. I love Neighboring Sounds as a debut feature. It's pretty wild, very expansive, really hard story to tell, and to like make all these elements work. It's got like a banal romance plot it's got like quite a lot of like irony in conversations and again like a lot of pauses in moment yeah like disjuncture you know i loved it i'd recommend it to everyone I'd recommend all of these films to everyone but we didn't really talk about how similar it is to barking dogs never bite yeah i mean look they're both talking about people whose experiences are conditioned by space and the fucking other creatures sharing the pit with us we are the virus <laughs> and yeah how natural vigilantism is as a response to that kind of <laughs> harry brown starring michael Caine, i guess would also be a, <laughs> a comparable text yeah in the syllabus <laughs>
All right, you're still listening to Film Grays. The next film we're going to talk about is Aquarius, which he made in 2016 after Neighboring Sounds. And uh, compared to Neighboring Sounds, I guess it's way more focused around one character. Yeah. Donna Clara, who's played by uh, Sonia Braga. Yeah, it's an excellent performance, isn't it? Really, really one of the best, I think. Very dominant. Amazing character. I guess we see her as a as a young person in like the 80s first but most of the film is about her as a she's like a a music critic and she's the last person living in this uh another like big beachside block of flats the aquarius building yeah and she's refusing to move out because she's carved this space for herself and she i guess she loves her flat but she also hates the idea of having to move out yeah i mean the first scene like serves to establish i guess the like familial connection to that space Mm -hmm. conveyed through like objects as well which is something that's done throughout the film like the first scene is like her mum's birthday yeah and you know some like kids from the family are like giving like a little like cute little speech and then she's just like staring at this cabinet, like fantasizing about like fucking on it when she was younger. <laughs> it's a crazy sequence. And then like when it cuts forward in time, like the cabinet's still there. And, you mm-hmm. know, I guess like objects are like, it's all about like nostalgia and memory as these like things intersect with, you know, the modern world, like gentrification and these like global capital imperatives. What, like the music of Queen? <laughs> yeah or more like bohemian rhapsody the film i guess yeah. <laughs> there are two two queen tunes in the film yeah for a for a music critic i don't know whatever. yeah a bit controversial what else was coming they out love ro- they it? love rock and rolling in, in brazil isn't it yeah i mean yeah what is it like fat bottom girls and um the first one is another one bites the dust I've got to admit that I come from a, a Queen household and I, I have to, I have to listen to Queen quite a lot. It was on a lot when I was growing up. To this day? Well, my mum always has the fucking absolute classic rock station on. So, you know what, bro? I listen to Freebird every day. I listen to... Oh, yeah. I listen to <laughs> Sweet Home Alabama every day. I listen to fucking Eric fucking racist Enoch Powell loving Clapson's Layla every day. Oh, it's cool you listen to Freebird every day. When the band gets back together after quarantine, we can, <laughs> yeah. we can rock and roll. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, yeah, it's it's similar to, to Neighbouring Sounds in many respects in that it deals with mm. like extremely similar themes, specifically the gentrification issues. It really is about her individual battle with, at first, personable, but increasingly corporate and, you know, threatening, I suppose, uh, like, sort of agents of property redevelopment. Right. It's interesting how Clement Mendoza, like, parallels it with, like, the, the ghosts of her, like, cancer that she's overcome or whatever. Yeah, for sure, man. The parasite, you know? Yeah, absolutely, to the extent um, of, like, the, the, last, termite. the last scene of the... The termites, yeah, exactly. And how that feels, like, malicious and, like, a personal attack as opposed to just, like, something that any, like, nasty landlord would do when they've got a, like... When they're at war with an individual or whatever, you know? Well, for sure. I mean, I guess she's, like, the sort of last bastion, though, isn't she? And they're, the, mm. they're pushed to extreme cynical measures... Because they know that they can't, like, sort of break her spirit with, uh, you know, financial offers or 
other forms of sort of compensation. The deplacement is, um, you know, too much of an affront to, to stomach without recourse to that sort of cynical act. You know? That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love how um, her, her family don't even back it. Her friends, her neighbours, yeah. like even the, the lifeguard guy is like, well, you know, maybe you should. Oh, yeah, the guy from Neighbouring Sounds. Yeah, he's yeah. fantastic in this film, I think. I love yeah. all the sequences between yeah. them. Yeah, just, I mean, I guess this one, because it's more focused on an, on an individual character, gives, gives more uh, space to those, like, sort of character-building moments across different, you know, across, like, different groups. For sure. Sorry, you're breaking off a little bit. Yeah, there's a mad sound going on here. Lesser, uh, I'm going to call you again. Okay. But yeah, I just really thought Aquarius was a masterpiece. It's probably my favourite of his films. I think for being the only one that's like focused around one character, it's probably the most like affecting. Yeah. Well, just because it's based on one character, I mean, it, it, it still provides a very multifaceted look at contemporary Brazilian life, you know? Absolutely. And it's super imaginative in the way that it... Yeah. What it chooses to tell. I mean, like, nothing happens in this film, right? Nah, I mean, it's just a series of sort of conflicts with with the property developers and, you know, little chats on the beach, chats with friends, like, sort of... Moments where she's, like, hanging out with her family or, you know. A lot of moments when she's just by herself as well. There's a a lot of time devoted to just her enjoying being alone, I guess. Which is something you don't really see in films. Yeah. Enjoying, like, rocking out. Yeah. I mean, it's a really sick performance, man. Uh, Yeah. She plays a really, like, comparable character in Baccarat. But I guess because the film isn't centred around her character so much you get a bit of a different look. You're kind of more with people who find her, like, super challenging. Like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, she, yeah, she's meant to be, like, a very, like, willful presence, you know? Imagine the American remake, the, like, Erin Brockovich style. Well, you know, I haven't seen the original Gloria Bell, but there was something about the, the, Ameri- the English language remake, I should say, not the American remake, that I just really didn't engage with. And when I when mm-hmm. that happened, I was like, oh, you hated it, yeah. Maybe you? I was like, maybe I just don't like films about you know middle aged women. And then I watched Aquarius, and I was like, no, that that was just not you know anywhere near as dope as it. Of course, middle aged women are equally as valid a subject, but yeah, the American remake would be bad. Yeah, because she would like get some sick lawyer and just like win through a legal loophole as opposed to the extremely unsettling and i guess it's cathartic but it's also just like it's not happy the ending but it is cathartic no it's harrowing and but i guess it does provide some sort of like resolution she is an interesting character man because as like sort of sympathetic as she is and how we're with her on this like sort of path of resistance you know she she is bourgeois and you know i think there's a particularly problematic or like interesting scene that like sort of raises questions about like the mentality of all of these people where you know that she's like with her family and they're like looking at old photos and there's like an old maid like on the edge of the frame like really like peripheral and they're like sort of like 
talking her down and like being quite like stereotypical yeah. and stuff. I don't know. What did you make of that? I think that's a great, a great moment in the film. Similar to Neighboring Sounds, having the sort of working class as like they're foregrounded in a way, or they're being talked about. They're like absolutely there. If you compare it to something like. I don't know, I was going to compare it to Roma, but I don't think that's actually that valid for what I was trying to say. But, yeah, I guess it's a, a demonstrating class solidarity, right? Mm. You know, for the middle classes or whatever, to be, like, united and just being disregarding or patronising. Yeah, there's something really important about, like, the gaze of, of it. Because it's, mm-hmm. it's not just the act of showing. Because in our last episode when we sort of, mentioned that we were going to be talking about Clayton Mendonca. I, I said that it sort of reminded me of um, Joanna Hogg, specifically Archipelago, where there is, like, right. the help there, like, brought in, and, like, there's a dynamic. But in that, like, uh, it left me with a very different impression to, like, how... But in this, you know, I feel like we are meant to, sort of... It is me- meant to make us, like, sort of reapproach like how we've been viewing this character and how like you know what they represent for sure even if they are like fighting valid battles like they participate in like these you know hierarchies and yeah it's not like a it's not like an age-old community being destroyed it's not like a it's not like the situation in Baccarat nah it's very different it's like a building that was built about 40 years ago that has like personal significance to this woman and letting that take on sort of metaphorical social dimension which you know are extremely valid and you know pertinent as well but i think it's like an extremely nuanced representation actually and very impressive definitely for the personal and the political so i guess that leaves us at 2019's back around or 2020 here as said the last film you saw in cinema oh the first Kleber film that i saw and it really wasn't what I was expecting, actually. Mm-hmm. It's not not really what the trailer made it look like. I thought it was more of a sort of generic, like, South American, like, sort of rural crime sort of deal. But it's not really that at all. I guess even in the film, it subverts your expectations dramatically quite early on. Yeah, it's got a mad tone shift. It wants to give you that impression, though, I think. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, it starts by establishing Baccarat, the eponymous, like, village, sort of commune-like. Yeah. And I feel like there are sort of, like, matriarchal elements there. It's a really fascinating community, actually. You know, it's, like, racially diverse and, like, gender diverse. and They seem to, like, experience a lot together in the way that it's set up. For sure. And yeah, I mean, it works to establish like this sense of community and like the conflict. It seems like it's going to be with like other local groups or concerning Mm. like local governance. The terrible, terrible politician. Yeah, but just like the sort of like crappy populist. Monorail salesman. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He comes through with like, I've got everything you need. Medicine, books, coffins. I love it. What's his name? Tony Jr. His name. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great character. But then, uh, really, there's a complete switch up, sort of from Dusk Till Dawn style, psycho style, (laughs) where it just becomes something completely different, pretty much exactly halfway through, actually. It's like a proper disturbance, like, intrusion, as I guess, deliberately so. 
you know something's going on, but it just goes in a completely surprising direction. Heralded by a, a UFO drone. <laughs> yeah. Which is a brilliant image. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, all these like sort of preliminary establishing conflicts and tensions really do, yeah, become secondary to like a crazy existential threat from these... I don't even know how to describe them. They're like manhunters. Yeah. With, like, weapon fetishes. They're on, like, uh, Joe Exotic holidays or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Pay Varsan's money to go and uh, hunt people. Yeah. Or they pay Udo Kier, who pays their politician. Yeah. To go and hunt. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Yeah, it's crazy. And it just, like, sort of leads up to this, like, crazy... Really quite violent, like Denouement. Way more violent yeah. than anything in his other narrative features. Whereas, whereas in um, Neighbouring Sounds, it's held back deliberately so. Yeah. Like, from that moment, but it's so extreme in Baccarat. There is a precedent in, in um, his filmography for that sort of like body horror. Mm-hmm. He he made this, uh, yeah, Caged In, it's called. this. That's on his Vimeo as well, and it's like very... Uh, like fucking like Argento carpentry, like heads in fridges and paranoiac cinematography. So even though I guess he sort of like reined it in for like some of his other films, it's like definitely in there. It's also it's also worth noting that he co-wrote and direct and co-directed this film with Giuliano Donnells, who um, yes, absolutely, who acted as sort of like the as the production designer on all these previous features that we've spoken about and on Recipe Frio as well. Yeah, I guess the thing that makes it so markedly different to the previous two features is the like engagement with like genre cinema. It's yeah, I mean, it's like a horror. It's it, a western. I love the the yeah the idea of like making a western like about American people as the villains. Well, for sure, man. But using a lot of tropes of like, especially like Sam Peckinpah and stuff. It must be a bit mad to watch Baccarat first and then watch the other two. Yeah, I feel like it sets some pretty mad expectations. But I mean, Baccarat is not like without the sort of social questions of the other ones. Like, it's obviously very prevalent, really, whether it's like looking at use of space. Like, once the sort of manhunters are introduced, they're pitched up in like an old like plantation home, basically, with like a poem on the wall that's like nostalgia for the, you know, the plantation. <laughs> fuck it's horrific whereas in Baccarat they have their museum to their like revolt which I guess it was like uh, quilombos which were like communities of like runaway slaves where they would like found their own towns and stuff. yeah and then when the people of Baccarat take up arms they're like using the the arms from the museum and it's like it's so cool man (laughs) (laughs) but it's like resistance has like been there they've always been like under attack or whatever it's just like a different form of attack yeah these days yeah but i guess it is mirroring a lot of like selling off a lot of brazil like what bolsonaro is doing or whatever i love how it's introduced by the town disappearing from google maps yeah for sure man that question of like how easily these communities and places can be sort of erased from public consciousness very pertinent you know and as well For like sure. they have like rich histories and identities that you know, are being challenged by outside evil forces colonial forces you know but it is in their spirit i guess there's also like the or the other use of the internet in the film is 
one of the characters, Acacio, he's introduced by the kids watching like his 10 best kills on like security cameras because he's like a, <laughs> oh my God, yeah. a bounty killer. Yeah. Or he's and he's trying to like escape that and just like live a peaceful life in Baccarat. But you know, they he gets pulled back into another conflict or using his skills. Yeah, and you know, the splintered com- the splintered communities of the area as well, like the sort of mm-hmm. like splinter bandit group end up sort of coming in and like, you know, banding together with the people of Baccarat to fight this like external threat. Have you seen Birds of Passage? No, man, I need to watch that. The Colombian film by Chiro Guerra. Yeah, I um, yeah. It's on Netflix, actually. Which, I, it's, again, about, like... That's about, like, the destruction of, like, an ancient indigenous community in, like, the 20th century as a result of, like, Western imperialism, colonialism, mm. and, like, all types of shit. But it's a way more pessimistic film, whereas back around, there's so much, like, satisfaction in, like, using the the tropes of the genre and like the the one dimensionality of like the villainous characters yeah and also you know the violent revolution you know and like the hope yeah exactly the, the hopefulness of that even if like at the end they're like oh have we gone too far hmm i don't know like i guess we'll see <laughs> like <laughs> it's a great like pomo moment i love yeah. but it's much like neighboring sounds they're both in uh you know really widescreen but used for sort of unusual purposes that film a lot of it takes place like really indoors but the the big frame is used to like really maximize the space but in this you kind of like wonder why it is until like i mean seeing it on the massive cinema screen was very uh it was a really great like last thing to see like very operatic yeah i'm very jealous man but it was it was nice to watch a movie as well i watched it at home yeah i mean i watched it on movie but it's sadly gone now but Again, I I wouldn't be surprised to see it on like one of the bait like streaming services very soon because I think like a popular audience will really enjoy it, you know. Maybe you'll get on um Shudder, man. <laughs> Maybe. Well, so I'll say you'll get it and then forget to delete your trial or some shit. <laughs> but it does have this like duality of being like people who like like the Devil's Rejects or whatever that you there'd be a lot to like like about this film or whatever but it also is a hundred percent satisfying following like the concerns that he's like writ large in his other films you know definitely one thing that's like quite interesting about this is that both this and Recife Frio start with like a title card that's like a few years in the future as like I guess a sort of like distancing technique you know it could have been like yesterday Mm-hmm. It's not like it's like extremely pertinent, you know. But also, this one is like definitely the most action heavy, and as you said, the people that like sort of stupid body horror shit will probably have a lot to enjoy in this one. I certainly enjoyed those moments. It has loads of like character design, you know. Yeah, and these kind sure. of things, <laughs> like where it really, really quickly like ascends to myth. I think you know, even though it's obviously a very relevant story but that is another like element of the west like the western genre and like the westernness of the film also the casting of udo kier we'd kind of gone without mentioning him but he it's just a fantastic performance yeah it's a really great performance yeah for sure as a true arch villain you know you see him in all types of shit he's i guess like breaking the waves to me is probably one of his more recognizable roles but he's in loads of shit as just like the scary german where there's a lot of subtext there yeah in this film 
he flips out at the other Americans because they call him a Nazi. Yeah, and he's like, you don't need to have lived through the Third Reich to be a fash, guys. <laughs> As we are learning every day. True. Yeah, it's a really great performance. So very, like, wild-eyed. He was brilliant. And his last line, his last line, I'll never forget it. As he's being entombed. <laughs> really a mad film. Really ugh. so different to the other features. It's it's really insane. I like how it's his message is that or like what he's trying to say is the same about like the destructiveness of capitalism. Absolutely. But the way that he's molded both the forms and the stories he's telling to like what's actually going on in Brazil at the time he's making. Absolutely, man. It's like a natural escalation. Yeah. Or like a logical response. Yeah. And he made never make another film in Brazil. Again, because as on the whole press tour for background, he's just talking about how like, oh, the National Production Board like are never going to approve anything I ever do. Mm. Like he used to get his films made in terms of like budget and just saying like, yes, I could make this film like with this script. Here's what this would happen. But like now it's like. Like the USSR or something like that, you know, where you need to have government (sighs) approval to even make a film. Yeah at every stage then again you know yeah it's a shame because it's obviously so like the national identity is obviously so core to what he's done so far but i'm sure he'll carry on making sick films you know and you know in the same way that bong's international work like still carries over like the same thematic interests i'm sure like i'm sure the same would apply to mendoza Certainly, I'm really looking forward to whatever he does in the future, to be honest. I think he's a great filmmaker. This is a great filmmaking partnership on this one. For sure. Probably my favourite filmmaker that we've watched the oeuvre of for this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a concise filmography. And yeah, just so much to enjoy. Extremely entertaining films and very rich. I guess I have a few more things I wanted to highlight about about Baccarat. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you like the 12-string guitar? Oh my god, I fucking (laughs) forgot. Yeah, the... The improvised, like, de- like you're going to die ballads. Yeah. As just... I love the... Yeah, because that's... When she's first walking through the town, it's like... big. It's like La La Land or something, you know? they got the, the mad group vocal as they're all just singing about, like, we live in the town. Yeah. And, you know, the yeah. spirits also, are Also, the, the whole community are tripping as well. We haven't even touched on that. Yeah, there's a couple of, like, jump cuts in there that, like sort of put in an adult like a or like a heightened state but i love that i guess it's another form of like collectivism or whatever yeah absolutely man they're having the shared experience you know the communal trip as opposed to like a stereotype of like americans going to brazil to like do ayahuasca or whatever (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly maybe that is one and the same as doing what they're doing in this film what the murder squad the elite squad yeah It's just a it's a very critical but also of course very entertaining film. One more thing where I just wanted to highlight this, having watched um Recife Frio, at the end of that film there's a really wonderful scene where like a like a local singer called um Leah the Itamaraka she's like sings these like traditional, like regional, like folk tunes. And she, like, does, like, a... It's, like, a music video at the end of Recife Frio where, like, 
they're doing like a circle dance on the beach and she's like singing into the camera and then like the sun like comes through in like a little beam yeah, for like yeah, a minute. Yeah. She's um like the recently deceased matriarch in Baccarat. It's just like another sort of homage to their like where they come from, you know? For sure. I guess the yeah, the living history, living memory and how the community all share that is like right at the start, even though the film starts out with a truck full of coffins. <laughs> One more thing with uh, both Cold Tropics and this. Well, Cold Tropics ends with like the big zoom out to like the fake NASA, like a globe, globe Earth vision or yeah. whatever to show how like this is only going on in Recife. Yeah. And Baccarat opens with the like 2001 shot, like pan to Earth. Yeah, really wild shot. Which is, I guess, some sort of genre element, but also an interesting way to figure like it's the same area that he's been talking about. Yeah. And to put a spotlight on it. Yeah, I mean, it's made made me think about it. And yeah, <laughs> it's made me think about it. <laughs> <laughs> we can't go there, though, but it's cool to see it on film. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't go anywhere. <laughs> I thought of the name for the episode, innit? Oh, yeah. Like Kleber Mendoza Filia. Oh, great. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that one word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, Sam, I've really enjoyed watching all of Clem Mendoza Filio's features. I wish I saw critics, but maybe I'll learn Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I feel like we got a pretty good, pretty good look at him from what was available, though. And yeah, it was a real pleasure watching these films, and it was a real pleasure discussing them with you, Emmett. Oh, thank you, Sam. <laughs> Dear listener, I hope you've enjoyed yourself as well. Thanks for being here with us. Yeah, we'll be back again soon, no doubt. Lots more good film grade stuff to come. We'll be posting uh, links to the Little Film Club on our Twitter and that if you want to get involved. So you check the socials, subscribe. Da, da, da. Yeah, send us a letter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot. <laughs> What else have you been watching, man? The Good Friday, um, Last Temptation of Christ watch. That was one of the best that I've had recently, I think. Fuck yeah. I, I hadn't seen it before and oh, it really blew me away, actually. It's a great movie, dude. Yeah, there's so much, just, <laughs> so much to enjoy about it. It was slightly less tran- less transgressive than I sort of imagined it being. It's, 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 hum- it's like, you know, theosophical and like humanistic as fuck in terms of like trying to analyse that shit that Catholics are obsessed with and I guess maybe Greek Orthodox writers would also have been really interested in and Calvinist screenwriters. But the duality of Christ beautifully explored by Willem Dafoe. Yeah, I mean, I, I said he reminds me of this. It's a sort of jarring Christ and at the beginning someone else gets crucified that looks more like the sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like historical Christ... And then it's and then it's Willem Dafoe. Um, he reminds me of the sort of Christ you'd find in like a Dutch museum, like carved out of worm-eaten wood. <laughs>
it's a film that starts out with Jesus Christ like making crosses for the Romans to crucify people on. You know, it's fucking. It sort of reminded me of this. I I know it came out way later, but I remember reading this Philip Pullman book when I was a kid called I think it's like The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, and that's like a sort of similarly like a counterfactual or like reimagined Christ story. So maybe I was sort of prepared for the, you know, the message of it or whatever. Or it's like ev- evaluative, like, sort of discourse. Were you prepared for old Christ? <laughs> no. were, you, were you prepared no. for Christ when he runs out of adrenochrome? Uh, it, the last hour is truly sick, actually, man. Really recommend it. Um, yeah, really dope film. Interesting to compare it to Silence as well, which... Um, Scorsese made way later, but is pretty comparable in, you know, analysing the sort of traje- trajectory of personal faith. Yeah. Mean Street's also really good for that. A lot of, like, good prayer sequences. And yeah, stuff. fair enough. <laughs> you, or what else have you seen recently? You were telling me about this Pedro Costa film. Oh, so good. It's called Blood. It was his first film. Yeah, um, when, when did he make it? 1989. I mean, he's a really, really strong visual stylist, and like his last few films really like blew me away, and I haven't really stopped thinking about Vitalina Varela or Horse Money. Um, but this was really, really different—a um, genre film. As I said to you, like it looks exactly like Satan Tango. What's the deal? It's about like two brothers, and they have like a really weird dad, and then the dad like disappears, basically. Uh, kind of like. The Return by Zvyaginsev. No, I haven't seen that, but I was going to cite Leviathan in relation to stuff we're going to be talking about. Yeah, 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 absolutely. (laughs) Well, you know. Um, Yeah, cool. Fair. I need to check that one out. Check it out. That's in that big uh, folder called This Light, which you can find on Instagram. (laughs) uh, That shit's really insane. I also watched Broken Blossoms on Sunday, which I've never seen before. The D.W. Griffiths uh, film set in Limehouse, the first, like on-screen interracial romance film still very problematic for a you know a dw griffith film as you would expect how long was it well i actually i watched it on 1.5 speed so i watched it in about 55 minutes but i think it's about an hour oh okay yeah but it's fine you know you never you know the transfers with the the shutter speeds silent speed etc i think it was fine oh i'll have to check it out man where did where did you watch that on on that's on the on the folder as well. Oh, oh yeah. But, yeah, I mean, some great Lillian Gish acting. Check it out if anyone wants to watch, <laughs> if anyone wants to watch any D.W. Griffith movies. <laughs> um, Maybe I'll excise that, that whole recommendation. Even. Nah. Nah. No, I mean, I think from a film, from a film historical perspective, it, you know, sounds interesting. It was interesting and entertaining. What about, what about you? Is there anything else you've watched? Yeah, a couple of things I wanted to know. I watched um, A Touch of Sin and Ashes Spirits White by Jai Jankar. They're both unbelievable pieces of work. Extremely sick sort of parables about contemporary Chinese life in both rural and urban areas. Like, extremely critical. Um, really beautiful cinematography. Great music. I've heard, like, rural noir be, like, ascribed to his films quite a lot yeah i mean i feel like he very clearly identifies with this 
province that like a lot of them are set in. I guess most places in China probably have that like sort of real dichotomy between extremely industrialized and high density areas and like rural outskirts and mines and stuff like that. But just really, really extremely dope. Um, A Touch of Sin is a sort of anthology film, all based of four stories of like people pushed to acts of violence, all based on like real incidents of like, you know, people going on like rampages after like, you know, being like parred by local bureaucrats. The CPC or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) it's really, really, really good. Um, Ashes Purest White is about like the girlfriend of a gang leader who like goes to prison after she like pulls out a gun to like help him in like a peak situation and then it's just about her journey through the outside world when she gets out like sort of navigating modern Chinese life it covers two decades and yeah it's a really impressive and very uh, moving film. Sounds very sick. I haven't seen either of those. I remember when Ashes Pure as White came out, I think the only place that you could see it was at Peckinplex for a couple of weeks. Yeah, for, yeah. Um, jo- oh, I said I was going to compare Leviathan to something. Both of these films really reminded me of Leviathan, you know, with the sort of exploitation of rural communities by self-made, like sort of like local oligarchs and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah.